Welcome to Greater European Talks, the official podcast of the Institute for Greater Europe. My name is Adi Srinivasan, and I'll be your host for this mini-series titled Talking About Time, Discussions on Temporality and Its Discontents, where we'll spend a little bit of time talking about the politics of time and temporality. In this short collection of episodes, we'll be exploring a growing camp in the study of politics and IR dedicated to the study of time and temporality in global politics. Each episode is modeled after a roundtable format, wherein I've invited two to three experts in the field to speak to their research and insights on the political value of time. Joining me in the second installment of this series, I'm fortunate to have Professor Elizabeth Cohen, professor in the Department of Political Science at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, a well-written scholar on the politics of immigration and citizenship, and the author of The Political Value of Time. Thanks for joining us, Professor Cohen. Next, we have Professor Ty Solomon, senior lecturer in politics at the University of Glasgow, author of The Politics of Subjectivity in American Foreign Policy Discourses, and an expert on IR and the role of emotions and affect in narrative construction in politics. Thanks for joining us, Professor Solomon. And then last, but certainly not least, I'm joined by Mr. Mirko Palestrino, PhD candidate in the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London, currently researching the international politics of victory, racialized hierarchies, and conflicting temporalities, with a focus on the temporality of ethics in war and resistance. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so to go ahead and get this party started off, um, for those who might be unfamiliar with the study of temporality, I think the best place to start the discussion would just be, why time? What's so unique about time and temporality, especially in politics and IR, that makes them such valuable objects to put under the microscope? And if we could start here with Professor Cohen. You've written a lot in your work on the merits of temporality studies and reshaping and, and reforming understandings of, I think, a base question, not only in the political philosophy of citizenship, but a really hot topic question right now, which is the topics of citizenship and immigration. So for those who may be unfamiliar with temporal studies, why is it that the temporality of politics is worth taking a closer look at? That's a great question and a great place to start. I just started a new project on time and I got this question as pushback to a paper, gentle pushback that I, I to a paper I, I just presented on Monday. And I think the clearest answer, the best way that I can think about it is kind of this two-pronged response, which is, first of all, anything else we care about that we, an activity we may want to do or a way we may, might want to inhabit the world, all of it will happen in time. And there are very few other things is the wrong word, but like conditions we encounter on how we experience our lives that really like touch every single thing. The closest kind of analog that I could come up with was maybe like health or the environment, which might affect us in every possible way. But I don't think that they really approach the the kind of depth of reach that time has in our lives. And the second thing is that it's a completely non-renewable resource at this point, right? Like we have not figured out once we time has passed or we use our time or our time is wasted, we have not figured out yet a way to recover it. So anything, any choice we make or anything that's imposed on us, any way in which our time is somehow taken or controlled is done, it's permanent, It's there's no going back. And so I think that's something that makes time both unique and also relevant to everybody, no matter how they think about their time, everybody's dealing with this. Thank you. And you've mentioned there kind of the ubiquity of time and temporal symbols. Something, Professor Solomon, in your work, something that you do is you track the temporality of emotions and affect in kind of construction of political narratives, which obviously have an ability to materially shape foreign policy. So in that regard, in that scope, why time and temporality? There's so much that can be said about foreign policy. Why is it that time and temporality, especially with respect to emotions and affect, why is that so important to look at? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think, um, so I just agree with everything Elizabeth just said about why studying time is important, but coming at it from the direction that I have before, I'm really interested in the stories that we tell about ourselves in terms of groups of people and collectives and nation states. And it turns out that the stories we tell about ourselves, national identity, as we as we talk about it in the field, is really underpinned pretty fundamentally by how we're emotionally attached and affectively invested in the stories that we tell about who we are. And I think further that those emotions are tied to assumptions and investments in time. So for example, there's always loads of political conflict about, you know, fights over national origin stories, right? So just in the US, there's constant fights over what the framers really meant, right? And so those are laden with assumptions about time and history. There are conflicting emotions about where we're going as a country, right? So not just a national past, but national futures are laden with all sorts of intersecting assumptions about time and emotions. And so we'll probably get a bit more into this, but I would just offer that up as, as, a, as a couple of reasons why um, something like the overlaps between time and emotions is really important for understanding a big concept like, like nation state or, or national identity. Thank you. And we certainly will dive a little bit more into emotions and affect and the temporality thereof. If we could turn here to Mr. Palestrino, the same question to you. Um, a lot of your work focuses on the temporality of ethics in war, and I think in particular on the politics of victory, which may be a concept that many of us have heard about or are familiar with, but may not be immediately obvious how temporality plays any role. So your work, I think, also touches on really classic questions in political theory more broadly, like resistance and hierarchy. So what do you, what insights do you believe temporality studies can bear in shaping our understandings of these classic questions in political theory? Thank you for asking that, Edith. And I, and I second everything Ty and uh, Elizabeth have said so far as well. I guess I can answer your question in two ways. So there's no concept, Elizabeth said, with reference to things we do in life that isn't actually touched by time. That's something important in political analysis and uh, political theory, international relations, I think, to, to keep in mind. Whether we want it or not, time is there in, in what we study. And, and usually it's there as a background condition. And the more specific answer to your question instead could be that some of these concepts are intrinsically temporal, but we often don't think about it in that way. And military victory, I believe, is particularly flashing as an example here, because usually we think about military victory as concept that defines who has won a war, who has been defeated, and we think about it as the outcome of a conflict. But in commonsensical understanding of the words, we also refer to it as a periodizer, right? So victory is that event or moment which separates wartime from peacetime, which is something I'm also happy uh, to delve into uh, during this conversation. But these ideas of something like an outcome being able to quite literally structure time, something happens and two different temporal phases can be discerned because of that. That's one of the reasons why I think it's, it is really important that, that we engage with time in political theory and concept analysis. Thank you to everyone. Um, something I think that's really striking about all the answers that have been provided is not just that, perhaps unsurprisingly, time is important, 
but that it's important just because of its ubiquity and that it's everywhere and simultaneously we just don't realize that it's everywhere. It's omnipresent and yet really difficult to trace at the same time. And so now that we have some unity from the panel there, I think we might get into a little bit of divergence. We'll explore the practical, I don't know if that's the right word, of um, temporality studies and see what sorts of questions does a time theorist ask and what sort of empirical analytical content forms the basis of theoretical exploration and investigation. I would like to start here with um, Professor Solomon because you mentioned emotions and affect. Now, I think so a group of our listeners may not understand what role emotions and affect might play first in foreign policy. And then to layer on top of that temporality, I think, um, adds another layer of complication. So could you break that down? What role does emotions and affect play? And then how does a time theorist conceptualize the temporality of those motives? And then obviously looking at foreign policy, what sorts of questions are asked in temporality analysis that are not asked in more traditional studies um, left from IR or security? Yeah, thanks. So to the first question, uh, why why should we study emotions in politics or or how are emotions important studying international relations? So I think so we usually kind of traditionally we've looked at politics as a very strategic or rational sort of game, right? Either between nation states or between players in, in domestic contexts. And when we can learn a lot from those frameworks, but we can also learn a lot sort of by suggesting that politics isn't always rational or strategic all the time, right? And so if it's not, what other sort of operating factors are there? And I, I've, me along with lots of other people have been saying the last 20 years or so that politics is very emotional, that international relations is very emotional, both in terms of um, looking at leaders. So look no further than someone like Donald Trump bragging about the size of a nuclear button to sort of masses either supporting certain sorts of policies or not supporting certain sorts of other policies. And so I tend to think emotions are pretty ubiquitous as, as is time. Emotions are sort of everywhere and they're so obvious that we've only sort of fairly recently come to study them in, in politics and IR. So just to your second question about what where time factors in here, I think the way I've been thinking about national identity is trying to think about how people think about their pasts and futures in ways that both project and constrain the ways we engage with the present. And what I mean by that is that where people have different ideas and there are different political interests involved in projecting sort of backward what our pasts look like. So we as a collective, we as a nation, because there are different meanings attached to that. And so if you can... If one can solidify their understanding of what a nation's past means, they've sort of set what the common sense is for that society, and therefore conversation sort of happens on their terms, which that's a huge part of the political battle already won, right? And so similarly, looking forward, the way a nation's future gets projected either sort of resonates with people emotionally or it doesn't. And so those leaders or political forces that offer more appealing types of futures and aspirations are probably going to be more successful. So looking at why some futures, some narratives about futures, stories about futures are more emotionally appealing than others, I think can tell us a lot about how time and emotions overlap in pretty much all the politics that, we, that we're interested in. And speaking of kind of emotional politics, Mr. Palestrino, in a recently published article in 2021, um, Neglected Times, you operationalize temporality studies to, I think, reframe theoretical understandings of populist politics, something that I think many of us are familiar with. And you tackle 
symbols of populism, like taking control back or the antagonization of the people from political rivals. Given the mass coverage on these sorts of questions in the daily news cycle, not to mention from the ivory tower, what sort of insights um, can temporality teach us about populism and the politics of resistance that might otherwise appear so familiar to us? I think, um, and, and I guess this complements a little bit uh, what Tai just uh, finished saying, um, at least within the framework of that article, um, which draws heavily on uh, on Tai's work. How these actors, which we call populists, act on time. And what I mean here is something that Tai just mentioned, how do they, do they construct the future, but also how do they construct the past? And this is something which is particularly important when it comes to populist politics because of the sort of antagonism which uh, usually works transversely throughout populist politics. So in that article, for instance, one key example uh, that I think is quite uh, exemplifying of the added value of starting time is this idea of Berlusconi's government in, in Italy constructed as a government which would materialize a rupture from a corrupt past. And this is something we are all very familiar with. But when we think about it, I guess, or my argument that would be when we think about how these moves, which we don't think usually about in terms of time, these are actually really powerful moves because of the effects that they have so that they can mobilize popular affects and emotions towards that past and that desire to, to enact that rupture and distance ourselves from that past, but also move ourselves collectively towards a more desirable future. And again, this is all done through time. So when it comes to studying things like populism or the political theory of people who have studied populism, again, thinking about how times works there, what are the things that time enables? These are things that I, that I guess shed light on a quite a lot of temporal work, what I call all the science temporal work that these notions, ideas do. Thank you. And if we could turn now to Professor Cohen, um, something I found really fascinating in your book, The Political Value of Time, is that you look at temporality, not just through the scope of the political theory of citizenship migration, but through the organizational and bureaucratic processes that undergird the immigration process. And so one of the implications of the argument of the approach that you argue for in the text is that some forms of institutional injustice, a concept that I think we're familiar with, occur when there's a normative devaluing or privileging of one people's time over another. So there's two parts to this question. The first is, what does that look like practically while we're on the topic of time symbols? What does it look like to devalue or privilege one people's time over another? Are there any examples? And then the second is that what's unique about temporality studies and what insights can it, sh- what, how can it shed light on this topic of citizenship and migration? I think like lots of people who work in the field of um, immigration law and related kind of practical applications of immigration law, people who are immigration lawyers, have a very keen sense of what a difference the way in which we might treat two people's time makes to their trajectories with respect to being able to enjoy free movement and also to have citizenship. And I am somebody who's very interested in migration. I was finishing up another project and at some point I was just like, wow, it's amazing how undocumented person in the United States can live for decades in a community, work, have a family, raise children and do all the things that somebody who's got a green card, who's lawfully present does. And yet their time adds up to nothing when it comes to things like the probationary period that somebody will go through before being able to naturalize. 
So I started looking at like what it means to have a probationary period. Like, why do we make people wait for things? And this is not just limited to naturalization, right? We all have to wait for things. There are waiting periods for lots of things, many of which are formally imposed and some of which are informal. But the formal waiting periods, like they're there for a reason. And often we're making people wait for something because we would like to kind of assure ourselves that they value the thing or that they're really up to the task, like they deserve the thing that they're waiting for. We might not really agree on what it is we're evaluating, but like the time is there for a reason. And yet, if you take the person with the green card and the person who's undocumented, the actual benchmarks we might use will be virtually identical. So there's a devaluation of the undocumented person's time. It has no value with respect to citizenship, even though a documented person can transact and use their time to gain citizenship. And so in the book, I argue, you know, that this is equivalent to saying that to kind of casting doubt on the moral status of the person whose time has no value because we did assign moral meaning to that time when we said something happens in it. And that's a problem for many, many ways it put camps in political theory. It was a real problem for a liberal democracy to tell somebody who's virtually identical to somebody else, like, oh, your time has no value. Your character doesn't develop. Your relationships aren't really significant. That work you did just somehow doesn't have the same effect on you in terms of valuing your citizenship. I think the same thing is true of vast disparities in punishment. So I use punishment and the way in which we now in modernity, use time as a form of punishment, incarcerating people for lengths of time. You know, we end up in a very similar position when we're punishing people quite differently who are otherwise in very similar situations or just excessively punishing, which is, I think, it's a U.S. perspective, but we are incarcerating people for very long periods of time, many, many people. So, you know, that's a problem in a liberal democracy, represents a departure from core normative commitments that you make when you form a liberal democracy. And something that all three of you have raised in the answers to those sorts of questions is this idea of change. Um, So there are these kind of dominant temporal structures that seem to affect policies and processes and just politics in general. And yet how easy is change? And I guess that also raises a question right before that, which is how much of this is intentional? So if I could pose that question to the panel, and if we could start with Mr. Palestrino on this, These sort of temporal mechanisms, these symbols, these technologies and strategies that are being employed to create these, to imply meaning to these ideas of victory or um, uh, what it means to be a citizen, um, are those, to what degree is that an intentional construction, a strategic construction, or is it just a happy accident for, um, for some of these movements? Thanks for asking that. I know Andy is not in this panel, but I'm gonna (laughs) cite his work (laughs) extensively. I think his work provides for a very good framework to answer this question. To some extent, they do. They they are intentional. Uh, The example I've made before about Berlusconi's government was absolutely intentional. And other instances in which are are less intentional, but not thereof less dangerous or important, right? So Andy's work, what it enables doing is tracing uh, what he calls will to time of a specific actor. So when you look at the construction of time, provided we all agree that, that much of time is a social construct, then you can delve into this question of what are the politics of that temporal flow, of that construction of time, of that understanding of time, 
and whose interests is that serving? In the case of the Berlusconi's government that I've tried that that I've talked about before and that I talk about in that article, that is, for instance, serving precisely almost electoral politics way, you know, the, the construction of an actor which is new and, and rough, it's desirable because it's bringing the fresh air to a country which is instead corrupt, etc. But when we think about, for instance, victory, here I think we also need to question a lot of our works and the power of what I call in my most recent work I'm working on at the moment, meta-narratives to the reification of time. So as we study time, as we try to deconstruct the concept or or, or, or we can do the same with other concepts as we, as we do with victory, in, in saying these things, we're also influencing the construction of a, of a concept, right? And there's a question of reflexivity there or ethics to address in terms of shedding light on these dynamics. What do we do? What do we contribute to? Is that and uh, desirable or the other way around? not doing that, just taking the notion, for instance, of wartime for granted. What do we risk doing? What do we risk reiterating? Because Andy would say again in his framework, that would be a reification of a passive timing attempt. So we don't question that the clock works that way because we're all pretty familiar and comfortable with the clock. But maybe we should at some point, because again, what's dividing time spans in seconds, minutes, hour, what what interest is that serving? I hope that, that it's a little bit of a rambled answer, but I hope that's satisfactory. <laughs> no, it's very helpful. Thank you. Yes. And in, in the first episode, mind the uh, shameless plug, um, we did ask this sort of question to those panelists, um, Professor Andrew Holm, Chris McIntosh, and Professor Nomi Claire Lazar. And we were really, what we were curious about here is this idea that if these temporal structures exist everywhere and there's these ways of seeing the world that are fundamentally temporal, how much of that is intentional creation for this, towards some strategic end? Or how much of it is just we're like just floating in this river and we're just riding these waves? Professor Holm did caution us to use fluvial metaphors because that also is kind of temporal in some sense. Um, but if I could turn to Professor Cohen on this, in your own research on immigration processes, on the naturalization process, or more broadly on temporality, how much of this is strategic and how much of this is just it's the result of the kind of the decisions that we make? That's a great question. And in the book that you've read that's actually published that people can read, like I very much focus on procedures where there's quite a deliberate decision to use time in a specific way, even if, like I said, we're not actually in our own heads agreeing on what we think time means. Time is a very intentional choice of media for transact. It's a very intentional choice of medium for transacting over forms of power that we really don't want to transact over. We don't want to be explicitly transactional about and certainly don't want to be transactional in a way that we would in the market. We look to, we often fall back on using time to kind of like waiting periods and deadlines and, and, and temporal structures when we, um, want to keep something relatively pure, like leave money out of it, right? So like we could actually just sell citizenship. Often, you know, when I talk about like, well, we don't sell citizenship, somebody comes to me and is like, oh no, there are these visas available for purchase. But like most, not all, but most of those visas don't instantly like transform you into a citizen. They are visas that allow you to go through a naturalization process in which there will be at least some waiting involved. Whereas like I can definitely go down the street and 
hand somebody a card to tap and I will get pizza instantly. <laughs> like that is a very different type of transaction. We don't want to think about core values or institutions and statuses associated with core values like citizenship, maybe like punishment and breaking the social contract. We don't like to think of those in terms of money. So I think that's a very deliberate decision. That said, I do think we're starting to experience the results of other types of other conditions we're in now that are the product of unintentional choices. Like I'm I'm thinking a lot about lately about administrative burden because of course in the US we have to do our taxes right now. And it's uniquely, I think, labor and time intensive to file taxes in the United States. It's not sure it's going to happen on time, (laughs) Um, to tell you the truth. And you know, the level of administrative burden that people experience in 2022 is both extraordinarily high for a lot of people that cuts across classes, right? Lots of people are experiencing administrative burden, even if the consequences are much more severe for people who are disadvantaged and it's rising. Like every year there's more nonsense we have to go through just to like live our lives in peace. And I don't actually believe that that that's always intentional. I, I think we can see some kinds of administrative burden that are intended to be barriers to people accessing rights. And then I think we see some just bad management in which the state is failing us. I think there can be circumstances, I can name some others too, where there are impositions on our time that really we did not intend. And I mean, climate change has got to be a huge one because our future is remarkably different than the one that I think most of us imagined when we were very young. Even if every choice was made with the option to do something quite different, I don't think this outcome was intentional. Something you've raised there, and I'll turn to Professor Solomon on this because you've done obviously a lot of work in narrative construction. Professor Cohen mentions this idea that in some cases, temporality seems to be a mechanism or a strategy to reject some other way of ordering things. That time can be this tool in in this toolbox for us. So in your experience with narrative construction, how exactly has time been employed, especially to shape emotions and affect? Is it still intentional? Or are there times, a lot of times when it's just kind of this, the product of other strategic decisions that are made? Yeah, really good question. So My answer is the normal political science answer. It depends, right? But uh, more substantively, yeah, just to kind of agree with both Mirko and Elizabeth, I think there's often elements of intentionality, but also kind of emergent effects that are unintentional down the line. So the example with narrative I'll give is one from the early 2000s when the sort of during the war on terror era, right? So the war on terror as a narrative, as a discourse is very strategically constructed, right? So the Bush administration was very conscious and very strategic about the story it wanted to tell about the kind of world we were living in after 9-11, right? And so, and that was sort of accepted to varying degrees by American people and people abroad, less so people abroad, but it was largely accepted in the States, right? So, so that was intentional, but it also had sort of unintentional effects sometimes. So, so I'm thinking here of episodes like, again, this was way back early 2000s, sort of not that long after 9-11, we would have stories about how, you know, someone would find flour in the office and think it was anthrax, right? I don't know if no one remembers anthrax, but there was an anthrax scare right after 9-11, right? So the reason I bring that up is to sort of circle back to 
kind of what I was saying earlier about the infusion of time and affects. So the Bush administration was not securitizing flour, obviously, but the securitizing moves as a result of the story of the war on terror that was being told created a kind of affective atmosphere that produced things like flour as anthrax, um, whereas before no one would have thought or assumed or feared that flour would have been anthrax, right? So there, the intentional creation of a certain narrative of a war on terror led to probably unintentional effects of people just being really scared and having a really fear-saturated atmosphere to where they saw things, everyday objects like flour as, as something threatening. And I think that, so you can kind of see these kind of emergent effects, unintentional emergent effects coming from strategically articulated narratives. And so, which is all just to say, I guess, both infuse the other sometimes, or both sort of, in a sense, cause the other in nonlinear ways sometimes. Right. So in some sense, then the time is sometimes the hero and the villain, the criminal and the victim. Um, something I do wonder with regards to the, the idea of intentionality behind the creation or reification of some of these structures, if it is intentional in some cases, then that does raise the question of change. So if there are kind of problematic temporal structures, which all of you have identified various examples, what exactly, how exactly does temporal change happen? And if we could start again here with Professor Cohen, if that's all right. Yeah, obviously you identify problems in the naturalization process and the way in which temporality is intrinsically a part of that. But what lessons does that actually teach us in terms of the actual immigration process? I've come to believe that if we want to think about change, that one plane on which we're going to have, that we always have to be very conscious and possibly resisting is the temporal plane. <laughs> I'll give an example. In another book that I, I wrote on immigration enforcement in the United States, I, I basically wrote the book because I learned some years ago about this very obscure provision in U.S. law that if you're in the country by a certain date and the date sometimes gets updated, even if you're unauthorized, you'll be eligible to naturalize. So it's essentially like this kind of amnesty provision, regularization provision that nobody really knew much about. And it had gone defunct. The date hadn't been updated. And I just looked at it and I was like, this isn't going to fix everything, but we can push on this and push to get that date updated. And it's going to mean that a certain portion of people who are stuck unable to ever get um, lawful status will get gain lawful status and have the option of naturalizing. That means identifying a temporal kind of vulnerability or place where a temporal decision is being made and pushing on it, update that deadline. It actually did make it almost to the floor <laughs> of Congress this year. The parliamentarian refused to insert that. And the parliamentarian, I would just say, could be fired and that could be inserted. I'm not sure the Democrats have the strength to put to follow through with that. But like in a lot of instances, we should not only be thinking more about our time and be conscious of the kind of tadpole and boiling water effect of how our time is being treated by others, but also be looking to push on that in the same way that like we negotiate our salaries and worry about our home values or healthcare, right? Like we should be thinking about time and always resisting poor treatment or devaluation of our time. Mr. Palestrina, the same question to you. So how does time get changed? You mentioned Professor Holmes' work. Something that Professor Holmes posits is this idea that 
every period in chronological time is heterotemporal. There's all these different timing structures that just exist all at once. And in some sense, in a lot of cases, they're just fighting against each other. And maybe sometimes change happens through the negotiation of these conflicts. Is there any other mechanism of change or do you see it as a lot of these questions about hierarchy and resistance and victory? This is all just a war between these different temporal ideas and temporalities. This is a great question. I'm not sure I have a good answer to, but uh, but I'll try. I, I guess... I mean, the acknowledgement of time pluralism already goes, uh, or what, what you named uh, heterosemporality, as goes already a long way into acknowledging at least that change is possible, and there are these mechanisms at work which might lead to like one time becoming more established than the other. If we look at history, I mean, I guess it depends the scale we're looking this at. But if we look at history and we look at the way you know the clock came about and and that became hegemonic or the Gregorian calendar and how that became hegemonic, then yes, it is kind of or rather than a war between a different way of dealing with time is more like the more powerful actor was able to impose that onto other people. But at the same time, uh, I think an interesting way to think about it in terms of like how to resist to that is keeping doing this research and shedding light on these mechanisms. So if we think about, and, and I'm going to get a little bit into the war study thing here, I'm sorry for that, uh, but, but if we think about chronologies and all the work that revisionist history is doing that is kind of going into that direction. To, like the way we, um, colors that dispute the way we tell the usual history and we teach the usual history in school and in, in, in Western country and say that there's World War One and then there's World War Two and then there's the Cold War and then there's, uh, you know, Vietnam, uh, well, there's Korea, Vietnam, uh, and, and, and then Iraq, Afghanistan. This is, this is very much political choice. And this is very much a specific political message about which conflict matters and which conflict don't matter. And, you know, trying and keep shedding light on the fact that these things are political and insisting on the fact that we, we kind of change this can slowly, I think, go into a more, uh, at least aware political direction. If I could chase you down on this, on that answer, Mr. Palestrino, just a little bit further there. Um, you mentioned earlier the idea of meta narratives, and obviously your answer just then indicated that a lot of the work is done in just the way we talk about war and victory and these concepts. But at any point, is just turtles all the way down? Do we, how, how do we know that there's, we're affecting some change? Is just be cognizant of it all the time? And obviously that is temporal language in and of itself. But yeah, I wonder to what's the aim to affect these structures? Do we just or do we just remain cognizant? Or do we say, do we are we actively trying to resist some concepts of time? That's really good uh, <laughs> as a question. Uh, again, not sure I have an answer. Um, I guess it's the starting point and not the end point. How to follow up with that? Uh, it's a great question. We all to give a lot of thoughts to, I guess, but at least getting that basis there to give the possibility for it, for, for resistance to emerge. And yeah, and, and in terms of actively resisting some, yes, we totally should. Resisting in, in the same way in which we resist. There's a lot of debate going on, for instance, in the country I'm from. That's why I, I'm familiar with that in Italy about what we teach to our kids at, at school. And in the same way, because that affects uh, the upbringing of kids and their off generations, etc. And these kind of moves when it comes to temporality or specific chronology, 
technologies, I think that can enact change if we actively resist repeating that uh, super Western version of the story, or at least it has changed in other countries when compared to Italy. And hopefully Italy has a colonial past we are yet to reckon with. We are, or historians, Italian historians are trying to, to go into that direction. In the UK, not to say that this has been solved, but there has been some progress in that direction, right? So I guess, yeah, it's a matter of politics. It's a matter of political choices. How to reap the benefits of it in any meaningful way, I, I'm not sure I can give you uh, like change the word answer. <laughs> but yeah, uh, some, something like that, I, I think is important to do. Very helpful. Thank you. And I'll turn to you, Professor Solomon, on this. You mentioned national identity and that I think that's a debate most of us are familiar with. It's everywhere in the news cycle. There seems to be a, one of those central debates and how these different conceptions of national identity, where we're going, where we've been, those are, those are all fundamentally temporal. So in the same way, is the negotiation of that final result of that temporal structure, is that just waiting for this debate to resolve? Or is, is, is that conflict the source of temporal change? Or is it just that there's this idea that we already have, there's this conception of national identity, and everything else is just a challenger, and we just wait to see what happens? Yeah. So again, I, I don't know, like Mirko, if I have a really good answer. Probably not, but I'll but I'll try to. So, so yeah, our, our sense of the big concepts like national identity is that they don't change very often, right? So, with like in studies of U.S. foreign policy, we kind of the literature sort of says there's these ideas of, you know, American exceptionalism and shining city on a hill and et cetera, et cetera, which have sort of formed a somewhat consistent thread of American national identity through through the centuries. So there's a sense that you know, the big things don't change, but I've, I've kind of been thinking recently the last couple of years, thinking of questions of change and continuity in terms of sort of micro and macro levels. So on the macro level, it, it might not look like things change very much. So something like the nation state or national identity, pick your big concept. It doesn't look like they change much. If they do, it changes very, very slowly. But if we sort of zoom in to sort of more micro everyday levels, I kind of think that things are kind of changing all the time, right? So people's idea about, go back to the U.S., what kind of country the U.S. is, I mean, that's, that's changed quite a lot, I think, just the past couple of years. So take something like Black Lives Matter. I think that has really sparked lots of different kinds of conversations and debates and conflicts over what kind of country the U.S. is. And not just in 2020 with the George Floyd protests, but this, this is going on for several years. So I think at more micro-political levels, we might say there's sort of change happening everywhere and everyday conversations and people, the office talk and people in, in conversations like these and the classroom, sort of all this is sort of micro-level change. And eventually it will affect the macro, right? So that might be very slowly. That's not a great answer, but that's sort of how I've been thinking about this question of continuity and change in terms of macro glacial change versus micro sort of there, there's change sort of bubbling around all the time. wanted to interject and say, I absolutely agree with everything my co-panelists have just said, but it would, I feel the like ignoring the elephant in the room to, to not just mention, we've just experienced at least the start, I think, of a pretty precipitous, dramatic, unexpected change in how we think about time in the form of this pandemic, right? Which has had not only dramatic effects on how we experience our time, because a lot of people felt both in some senses, really at the outset of the pandemic, a slowing of time, but then also 
for some a, a speeding up of how they were experiencing events that made it feel like time itself was speeding up instead of slowing down. And then also like, I think we're confronting in many cases more directly the fact that some people's whole lives aren't valued to the point where we're willing for kind of entertainment or comfort to impose risks on people in this pandemic that very likely will shorten some people's lifespans considerably. At the same time that I agree that how we we have to think about most temporal change as gradual and not fully predictable, we're in a very interesting position right now as time scholars in this phase of the pandemic that we're now currently in. So actually that leads us down, I think another interesting rabbit hole, if I could, to the entire panel regarding COVID-19 and um, the pandemic and the way in which that I think affected people's perceptions of time and experiences of time. Obviously there's two layers to this and you you both, you all three have mentioned this in various ways throughout this um, podcast so far, but there seems to be this element of narrative, the way in which we talk about time, the way we talk, discuss time, that we see time. And there's also this effect of policy and practice, real to real world political strategies that the effects of which are born temporally as well. And so I wonder if COVID-19, if we accept this premise, I think it's true generally that it has affected people's perceptions and experiences of time. What level do you think that's happened on? Is, is that primarily through the way we talk about this pandemic, the way, or do you think it's through the policies that have accompanied kind of lockdown protocols, um, self-isolation, et cetera? And it, maybe we'll start here with uh, Professor Solomon. <laughs> I don't have a great answer ready, but uh, I mean, I think you start to answer it right there, Addis. So I think it. this is sort of, change on multiple levels. So everyone being stuck at home during lockdown, like people's own perception of sort of home time or leisure time or work time and those bleeding into each other at home. I think that's really changed. And this, of course, I mean, Elizabeth just, I mean, sort of said all this already, but that's changed. People's relationship to work and work time has changed. The state's perception of how responsive it needs to be to the virus's own natural rhythms and tempos is something that's sort of new and I don't have my head wrapped around how that works, but I, I just have had the sense this whole time that you could probably tell a plausible story about COVID-19, about the pandemic in sort of temporal terms. So the multiple overlapping rhythms or tempos of the virus's natural rhythms, plus the state's attempts to sort of capture and deal and contain those versus multiple states, different sort of efforts to do that. And so if you go sort of up the scales of analysis, there are multiple tempos, uh, rhythms at play here, which just makes it really complicated. And I think we're probably still working through sort of as, as time scholars, how the pandemic has changed and is changing still, how we think about times and all these different sites and contexts. Professor Cohen, I'll turn to you. You raised, you brought up this example. A lot of people do say, I feel like it's still March 2020. I don't feel like any time has passed since then. We're obviously now in April 2022. What level is that temporal experience, that change happening on, do you think? I don't know. I do have this question about like, I think I tweeted this at some point that I I can't stop saying, you know, two years ago for things that happened in 2018. And I'm not that bad a man, despite not being able to calculate like a basic time zone. I actually don't know why that's happening. I asked people why this is happening and there are various answers. And my gut tells me that everybody's answer is right for them. And that we have to respect that because it is it is their experience of the time. So for me, it's like there was not enough texture in my life over the last two years 
to get any kind of signposts or landmarks for time passing. I'm used to certain things that just were not happening. And so the time became very flat and it was as if it was, you know, it was not passing at all. I think we just have to respect everybody's um, expression of why it is that is going on, but it is a very common, something people are commonly reporting. Yeah. And finally, we'll turn, uh, turn to Mr. Palestrino on the same question here. Uh, this is a really interesting example because I think for those unfamiliar with temporality studies, it provides a really clear example of the sort of thing that is just penetrated by time and temporal ideas, but we don't necessarily see it as such. So what level is this change in temporal experience throughout the pandemic? What level do you think that's happening on? I think, and again, it's probably not a good answer, but on multiple levels, right? So depending on the things we're thinking about in a phenomenological sense, I guess, that changed on a case-by-case basis. So just what Professor Cohen just said, depending on who you ask, you get a different answer about the way time was experienced. And I think that's totally plausible, totally meaningful. And I do agree we need to accept that. Certainly, if we look at policies and if we look at health management policies as well as other type of policies. So one thing that I that I, I get stuck, I don't have fully elaborated thoughts on this, I anticipate, but one thing that gets my head stuck when I think about is that we were able to make a huge effort in prioritizing certain policies over others, which we never thought would have been deprioritizable before because of this thing, right? Coronavirus, right? Uh, so that's really key. And that really puts things into, into perspective. Policy-wise, specific decisions were made to accelerate and prioritize dealing with the pandemic in a certain way over other policies and other, not to say that this was a bad choice, but just that it is possible, right, to change things as we used to when we perceive that's a need. That's very helpful. Thank you, everyone. Um, We'll kind of wrap things up with this final question on just We've talked a lot about time, different ways of looking at time, different ways of understanding time, um, temporality, and how it might matter. But where exactly does all of this leave the analyst? So where does IR scholarship go from here, temporal or otherwise? And what other interesting questions are there left to explore, whether in the niche of temporal politics or elsewhere? I think for our listeners, this may also be a good opportunity to hear a little bit about most recent work, any current projects, or what you might be interested in exploring in the future. We'll start here with uh, Professor Solomon, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So I guess, you know, in terms of where do we go from here, I mentioned my own work here and just how sort of based on my interest in time and emotions and the politics of those where some interesting questions might lie sort of in this field. So I, I tend to think that, um, you know, one area might be to continue exploring this, these overlaps between the politics of time and the politics of emotions. And because I think each has some potentially interesting engagement for the other. So while, you know, an engagement with emotions could show time scholars how time is lived and felt politically, while engagement with time and temporality can demonstrate to emotion scholars some key ways in which emotions are narrative are, are narrated and linked in particular ways to sort of collective identities, right? And so a couple of questions that might sort of orient a focus on time and emotion. So what temporal features make a narrative or a story appealing to audiences, right? When do particular representations of the past, of the present, and the future resonate with audiences? Kind of going back to some things that we mentioned before. 
and how and in what ways do emotions of various kinds construct, intersect, inflect, and amplify discourses of time, right? So again, discourses and stories about our pasts and our present and our future, right? So um, I won't go too much down in the weeds with all this, but I'll just sort of offer that up as a teaser of where some interesting questions might lie and where time scholars might go. Thank you, uh, Mr. Palestrino, to you as well. Thank you. As I was thinking about this question, I hold all sorts of thoughts. I guess one good thing about time is, I mean, on the one hand, it's difficult to narrow down research when you research about time because it's so hyper-pervasive in general. On the other, there's a lot of creativity that can get in because it's that large. So I'll also mention something I'm, I think about basing on what I do, and, and that is concepts. In my case, is victory, but in general, how do we approach concept? How do we study concept? Where does time comes in in that? How is time registered in concepts? How do concepts signify for time? And what are like all the concepts beyond time, obviously, including time, but beyond time, what does that do to our understanding of time? As an area for IR, since you mentioned, there's been a lot of work of that meta-theoretical move that I've mentioned before, exploring how IR has approached time. But that work isn't done yet. I think it has been done in terms of like school of thoughts, but also specific thinkers, specific policy figures, specific policies. How does time work in, in that? And I mentioned a last one because I'm a little bit of a war geek and a war scholar. Time and war, really a lot of work to be done there because it just is just starting now. Um, you mentioned Christopher McIntosh was part of this podcast. He's doing some work on that. I'm trying to do some work on that. Uh, there has been work in critical military studies, but all sorts of things relating to war, time, the military, all these questions as, as a broader area still need to be answered. No, that sounds brilliant. Looking forward to see what you come up with on that on those fronts. Um, last but certainly not least, Professor Cohen, you mentioned, obviously, uh, a current project. So what happens next? I'm kind of thinking about things at the very micro level and then at the most macro level. I think we should be really considering understanding where our time goes. And that often means very micro level studies. There are you know, people looking at differences in how long people of different races and genders wait for things. And I think that's super interesting how people spend their time or are forced to spend their time in their day-to-day -day lives. I think we should be looking to each other's disciplines. So, uh, you know, I was listening to this discussion of wartime and thinking like of all the great historians who have a lot to say about wartime in terms of periodization and in the past. And then I'm also thinking myself as a political theorist, paying attention to how much we value our future and how much future we have and how much autonomy. I'm, I'm personally working on a project about temporal autonomy and how much control we have over our time, but in particular, our opportunities to plan our lives, which is a very, very fundamental human desire. You know, this new work that I'm doing will be asking why liberalism justified itself based on the human right or the human desire to plan, to plan our lives and never made provisions for the time it would take and the conditions placed on our time that might either allow us the opportunity to plan or foreclose the opportunity to plan. So those are pretty big questions, but that's, that's what I really am excited about right now in temporality studies. 
Thank you very much. And um, thank you to all the panelists as the as a few of our navigators on the ship of the politics of time. Really looking forward to seeing what happens next in the field and all the developments you guys will produce. Um, so thank you to all of our panelists, Professor Elizabeth Cohen, Professor Ty Solomon, Mr. Mirko Palestrino for lending your time for this hour. And um, thank you to all the listeners. This has been Greater European Talks and I've been Liz Srinivasan. Awesome.